Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome to From Queer to Eternity a podcast exploring what it means to us to be queer. My name's Scott Hancock, and every episode I'll be chatting to a different guest from the LGBTQ plus community, talking about their lives, experiences, and what queerness means to them, and hopefully discovering just how much we all have in common. Due to the nature of these conversations, certain themes, phrases, or experiences discussed may be upsetting for some of our listeners, but generally we're here to celebrate queerness in all its forms and have a good time sharing our stories. This episode, I'll be chatting with Hannah Raymond Cox. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm going to begin, as I so frequently do, by asking you, what does the word queer mean to you? And how do you personally define yourself? Well, those two questions are sort of a Venn diagram of each other, I suppose. Mm. Um, Queer to me is a political and sociological outlook and attitude and set of behaviors and i would define myself as a queer woman i'm cis but i think that my approach to sexuality and romanticism both don't conform to when we close our eyes and think of a quote-unquote normal Mm. het relationship that's like not what i've ever been interested in (laughs) so yeah just to set the scene for people who who won't know. What was your sort of childhood like? Where did you grow up? What was your sort of family background like? <laughs> uh, my childhood was slightly more complicated. Um, mm. I was born and grew up in Hong Kong when it was still British. It got handed over in 97 when I was two. And I lived there until I was nine years old. Um, child of separated parents. Uh, My dad and his wife remained in Hong Kong, but at age nine, my mum, my stepdad and my younger sibling uh, moved to San Francisco, where I lived until I was 16. I left home at 16. I moved out. I uh, was briefly homeless. I sofa surfed, couch surfed. Uh, And then I came to boarding school in England, where my mum and my dad's family are from. And then I spent four years in Scotland, and now I'm in London. <laughs> wow. So a, a lot has happened in, in a very short life. Yeah. I think a lot to get your head around, particularly if you're... Long stif- story, as short as possible, yeah. or rather short story, <laughs> as complicated as possible. No, but I'm, I'm sure we'll delve into different elements as, as we chat. But uh, wh- when did you sort of first realise or get the inkling that you you were queer? I was a very late bloomer Hmm. in general. And while I had sort of playground crushes when I was very young, and that was on a boy, um, I found that I was never into kids, which I think was always a big part of the romantic uh, cis woman, you know, het concept of you plan a wedding or you play mash on the playground or whatever. And I never was interested in that. (laughs) And then... I 
whenever I dated boys, and I did date boys, um, it was never a comfortable thing. Hmm. And by the time I got to boarding school at 16, I'd figured out that it wasn't really the gender of the person, it was more the person of the person, (laughs) informed by gender, I suppose, that was interesting to me. And in boarding school in particular, there was a lot of, there was a culture of girls practicing right. with each other for the het relationships that were going to be in our future. And I ended up finding that the practice was a lot more fun <laughs> than, the, uh, than the real thing. So by the time I got to uni, I was very sort of out and proud as bi. Mm. And then... Yeah. Did you have that thought at any point that this would just be a phase or did you feel you had to try to be straight at any point because that was the accepted norm? Passing as straight was always very important. Um, There was a lot of bullying. I went to two all-girls schools. The Mm. first one was a nightmare and the second one was uh, brilliant because I was 16 um, and knew myself. But it was less in and of myself, you know, wanting to be straight and more oh, this is a survival thing. If mm. you're if you're a gayer or whatever, if you're a les, then that that's a way that people can brand you a social outcast. But San Francisco is a fabulous place to grow up if you are gender non-conforming, if you're sort of, you know, not allosexual as well, because there's so much, it's just accepted. Mm. And the representation's really good. And the sex education is absolutely fantastic. So, you know, at age nine, I knew all the different parts of the uh, male and female body and could recite them. And we had a song that we sang. <laughs> um, and I had, of in my school, I had like three out and proud teachers, one of which I was very like... Uh, in awe of and, mm. and thought was the coolest thing since sliced bread. So, yeah, it it was more like the parental discomfort with it that kept me somewhat closeted than the societal one, I would say, at that point. And culturally, do you think being a Jewish woman factored into um, those attitudes? It can't be divorced from it. My dad had already been told off by his parents for having a child with a shiksa um, and then marrying another one. And then, you know, there's this sort of understanding for like a certain kind of North London Jewish community that, you know, this is what your life looks like. Mm. Your son grows up to be a doctor or a lawyer and your daughter grows up to do something in communications and then gets married, you know, (laughs) something along those lines. Um, And there was a lot especially from my dad and Mm. we've had lots of chats about this um and he is a lot better about it now but there was a lot of casual homophobia transphobia racism that's inherent to the yiddish language Mm. that he spoke with his parents and he would speak with his friends and he tried to speak with me my mum on the other hand it was never about religion it was more about keeping up with the joneses right you know it's fine if somebody else's kid is gay but you know hannah you know what what about grandchildren you know before even thinking about you know sharing my life with another person Mm. 
I never like fantasized about having kids or wanted to have kids. And I'm 25, so maybe these things will change. But I really, really, really doubt it. You know, when you ask, was being queer a phase? I've not been a person for phases. Mm. Uh, at age four, I said I wanted to be an actor. And I'm, you know, <laughs> you know. Yep, you're here now. Yep. <laughs> here now, 21 years later. And I said my favorite movie was, you know, <laughs> Mary Poppins. And still at 25, it's Mary <laughs> Poppins. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty consistent person internally. And, and I'm curious at school, you say you received sex education at a very early age. Did that education also cover things like sexuality and gender? Well, gender a lot less, but mm. sexuality for sure. However, when I got to this all-girls school, I fell in with uh, two people who were also being quite quite bullied. One of them being who I think of as my big brother now. Mm. He goes by Mark, and the other is uh, was a is a queer black woman called Taylor. And Mark, we always knew as a boy even though he was at this all-girls school, mm. you know? So even though we weren't being necessarily explicitly taught about gender, because I had somebody who was two years older than me who I looked up to and was my close friend and still is to this day at age nine, it was always on the table. There were people who were gender non-conforming. There were people who were, you know gay and lesbian and bi and bi was on the table mm. from age nine we we were told that some people like boy bits and some people like girl bits and some people like both but don't do anything that they tell you to until you're ready and this is what an sti looks like and this is what giving birth looks like and that was horrifying um <laughs> and this is what all kinds of contraception looked like i think contraception we we had that chat at 11 mm. But, you know, at the same time they showed us condoms, they showed us dental dams. And you have to remember that the adults, you know, I look back on them and they seem so old, but there were a few of them must have been around my age now. Yeah. These are the people who watched their peers get decimated by the AIDS crisis. Mm. So it wasn't just a, you know, we should be teaching kids this. It's we urgently need to be educating kids about this because the city had a complete wipeout of a generation of queer people and it sounds like you had a lot of resources at your disposal at, at that age did you feel supported at school absolutely mm. yes at home not particularly it was i don't want to just outright say a failing no but there's a very different attitude between West Coast Americans and North London Jewish people as a, to what you talk about and what you should talk about. So while I was getting amazing information at school, at home, my mum dropped off a stack of books and said, read through these and tell me if you and ask me if you have any questions. But whenever I tried to ask, there would always be something else coming up. So I would take my questions elsewhere. Mm. And for that, I'm really grateful because I got amazing answers from other people. But, you know, it wasn't ideal. <laughs> and in terms of then uh, leaving home, what drove that decision? Yeah, well, I had been in a verbally abusive household from about 
10, I was aware that something was wrong. And from 14 up, it started moving into physical abuse, not sexual, just the, the cruelty was nearly unbearable. And it was more, more than anything, the secrecy and the silence that hurt the most. And I started really relying on my queer friends, on my found family, hmm. I suppose, quite young. And there was a breaking point and I decided I can't live like this. I can't live in, in under this roof anymore. I packed a bag with my computer in it and my, my posh, you know, slidey phone with all the <laughs> keys and yep. And I went and sat in the Ben and Jerry's on Hate Street because they were open until sort of three in the morning. And I called my friend Taylor and I lived with her for a while. And then I lived with some other friends and all the time. And I hadn't told anyone what was going on apart from people my age hmm. and Mark and Taylor who were a year, two years older and a year older respectively. I tried telling a teacher but they didn't do anything, which I discovered was illegal relatively recently. There's the thing in the in California called mandatory reporting. And I rang my dad in Hong Kong. And he'd been visiting once a month since I was nine. So seven years he'd fly over. And he had no idea what was going on. And the minute I said, I can't be there anymore, and this is why, he jumped straight into action and we toured must have been sort of 15 boarding schools in the space of a week two weeks oh wow i applied for seven i got into all of them i chose one and within sort of four months of, of walking out the door i was on a plane to england with all my earthly belongings that i could sort of salvage and i started living a relatively independent life. And in terms of moving to the UK, how was that experience? Uh, I had I had visited a lot because my grandparents lived here. I had family friends here. I, I hadn't lost my accent when I was in San Francisco. I clung very fiercely hmm. to something like this voice, though this this is, you know, code switching is, is too easy. Um which is good for the voice acting, but <laughs> it was, it felt like stepping through the mirror in, in Alice in Wonderland, sort of everything was familiar, but slightly different. And I could, I could pass as being from here, but increasingly I found it more and more difficult as people's references get more obscure. <laughs> There's a band called Five, but it's got a five in front of it. <laughs> You know, that sort of, yes. What the, what is a Mr. Blobby and why do you like it? You know, that sort of, yeah. <laughs> but I, I love it here and, and I love Scotland and it's in the same way that I chose my, my family, I found like I've chosen my place. Mm. And I think that that's something that queer people, I don't need to explain that to. And that's so comforting. No, I think identity to all of us is important, but especially to queer people, because we spend so much time discovering ourselves and questioning ourselves. And I find it interesting what you say about clinging on to the accent, because clearly that was an important part of your identity at a point when it sounds like you were being forced to 
question every aspect of yourself. <laughs> yeah, it was the, you know, it's a very trendy word, but for <laughs> the gaslighting, no, that didn't happen to you. Mm. No, you're happy here. No, everything's fine. You know, no, you're not interested in girls, really. Mm. But having that thing that you, a little sort of hard chip of rock that sits inside you and you know it's there and you know that no matter what you're told, it's real, was a comfort and still is mm. being a stable, steady <laughs> person, I suppose. And once you arrived at boarding school, did you feel then comfortable enough to explore more openly who you were? Yeah, I think for the first time in my life, I was cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had all grown up with each other. The school started from a very young age as a boarding school. So these are, you know, it's really hard to be cool when you've seen somebody throw up eating too many Twizzlers age 11. <laughs> um, and I came in as one of the few new girls and I had a boyfriend which was incredibly cool to these girls. We met doing the SATs. He sat behind me and to the right, and I flunked them because I was too curious about this person behind me who'd showed up <laughs> in a sort of Doctor Who-style coat-scarf combo. And, yeah, it, it felt like a reveal rather mm. than a discovery. And in terms of coming out then, how did that sort of come about? When did you more openly acknowledge it? I was out at boarding school. I hmm. came in going, I'm bi, because that was the only word I knew that could describe how I felt, that I really didn't care what the gender of the person was or what bits they had. And um, I walked in with that as a core truth. Hmm. Um, I came out to my mum just before I got into uni because I'd gone to Cuba in Soho and I was very safety conscious. Mm. And I said to my mum, I'm going out. I will be back at 10.30. Because <laughs> um, I'm 17. And <laughs> a nerd. Um, I will be back at 10.30. Here is where I'm going. If I'm not back, wait 15 minutes. <laughs> and if I'm not back, get worried. Um, and I didn't expect her to look it up. <laughs> right. Okay, so it was purely accidental coming out then. Purely accidental. And I got back and she was, and the lights were all off in this hotel room that she was in for a conference. And I came back having had a bit of an odd time with somebody going, are you queer? And me being like, I think so. And they went, I can tell you've snogged boys. And me just sort of standing there on the dance floor, not knowing what to say back beyond, sorry, what? Um, <laughs> and I came back after what felt like a sort of rejection. Hmm. Um, and my mum is sat in the dark, sat upright against this headboard <laughs> in this hotel room. And she goes, have a good night out then. Um, and I went, it was all right, bit odd, did a lot of dancing had a sprite um and she went is there something you want to tell me and then there was a whole tearful conversation of why didn't you just tell me and are you sure and do you have to be can you not you know oh, the grandchildren bi, again yeah yeah all of that but it was just a very odd night <laughs> mm. 
And then I came out to my dad a few years later while we were eating pizza. He was very angry that my mum knew first. Uh-huh. <laughs> but professionally, hmm. I came out at 19. I'm a performance poet by trade. And I wrote about that night at Kuba, and I won a slam with it. My first poem, my first slam. And it got published. And I got gigs off the back of it. So because I wrote the poem and because it did well, I was immediately out. And around this time, I imagine this would have coincided with university as well. So did that change the way, I mean, as you say, you'd always been independent from an early age, but did that make you even more comfortable embarking on, you know, a degree, new people, a chance to reinvent yourself and and almost just state, this is who I am? I I don't know that there was much reinvention. I felt like I got all of my reinvention out the way at 16. Mm. But I was very confident and independent. I I had been used to living away from parents and away from people saying, I can't stay up until three and I can't eat a box of Ferrero Rocher if I want. And I can't, <laughs> you know, see lots of different people and date lots of different people and shag lots of different people. It started, though, at uni, sinking in that I was increasingly or decreasingly attracted to cis men. Right. Not that there's not an occasional exception, but it also became really obvious that I was aromantic, I think, might be the best term. It still doesn't feel completely right because no one's been able to define what romance is to me satisfactorily. (laughs) Um, But I wasn't interested in holding hands or, you know, snogging in public or great candlelit dinners and that person is supposed to be your everything or the, the thing that you're most excited to do that day. For me, that was always my work, whether that was poetry or theatre or writing in general. And I had a girlfriend for about a year and a half at uni, and we both broke up with each other because we liked theatre, doing theatre more than we liked (laughs) actually being in the relationship. You know, if we could choose, she'd rather be doing rigging and and Mm. I'd rather, you know, be sat there with a script in hand, frantically memorising lines. And that sort of, that crystallised, I suppose, at university and hasn't changed. And I've given it a good go a couple of other times about, like, can I be in a romantic relationship, in a traditional romantic relationship? And so far, the answer is no. (laughs) It doesn't drive me, I think, in the way that it does some other people. Um, I'm very comfortable being single. (laughs) Hello, it's Mr. P here. And the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of Two Mr. P's in a Podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. 
So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips, and get ready for the lesson. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're saying earlier as well, you feel often you don't stop coming out. Does that make dating difficult in a way if you're interested or do you often sort of find yourself attracted to people who know you're queer already? Well, I don't date on, um, I don't date cis men anymore. Hmm. Not sort of on apps at least. I don't look for them for the simple reason that at this point, the bar to clear is really, really high. Right. Um, (laughs) And I don't want to go through and, you know, educate them to be good partners in a way that would work for me. Mm. If somebody introduced me, maybe, and they could vouch for the the standard of the person, like, you know, I don't... Provide a character reference. Quite, exactly. Yeah. Resume, please. Um, No, <laughs> that sounds really cold. It's just that I am only on apps like Her or Lex, um, which are already like trans and queer friendly. So Mm. that does a lot of the sifting for me. And I try to have a chat. I don't, I still haven't put a romantic in my bio, but at the first date I tried to, or like the first meeting, I tried to have a chat to be like, look, if this is what you're looking for, I'm not sure I can do that, but you're cool. and I'm interested in hanging out. And that has not scared people off, but that's really sifted who I think would be interested. But then I've had a couple short-term relationships since my, you know, open and honest communication is key and all that, Hmm. where they think that'll change if I'm in a relationship with them for long enough and it doesn't. And then they get mad because it hasn't. (laughs) And I get disconcerted because I don't understand why they would think that that would be different or why they would think they were so special that I would change a core bit of myself. Do you, do you find with men sometimes they almost want to try and persuade you that maybe you're wrong or have made the wrong choice, particularly having been a bit more fluid in your queerness previously? Yeah, um, very rarely because I uh, cultivate a, a certain... What on earth are you trying to do? 
Mm. <laughs> um, look whenever that happens, and it does tend to put it in its tracks. Though I have had blokes, I mean, even at drama school, which one would think would be a a place of understanding and and queer celebration, I had somebody at drama school say he could turn me in the middle of a stage combat lesson. And how do you respond to to that? I don't know how other women respond. I know that for some people they laugh it off and for some that they uh, get really upset because of my background i don't appreciate being told Mm. what i am or what is real when i believe otherwise and in that moment i was holding a sword (laughs) (laughs) and in that moment i said do you want to take this outside that's a strong position to be in (laughs) yeah well and i'd done four years of medieval reenactment, so I was pretty good at hitting people with swords. So, you know, actually hitting people with swords, not pretending to. Mm. And my very brilliant stage combat teacher, Phil, um, went, what's going on? I, I said, do you want to say that again louder? And then do you want to take this outside? And the boy repeated it like an idiot. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And he said it was a joke. And I went, great. So you won't mind taking this outside. (laughs) And Phil went, you can do 50 push-ups to the boy. And he said, and you're not going to have a sword for the rest of the lesson. You can just do the forms with your hands. (laughs) Yeah. Which I think was a pretty good de-escalation. But I then spoke to the boy afterwards and I went, you ever do that again and you will not know what hit you and you will get in trouble more than just (laughs) what Phil made you do push-ups for because I'll just go and talk to somebody higher up. I think Phil was in the right. I think he de-escalated, which which was the important bit. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I... I think there's always going to be people who think that they can say what they want if you're woman-shaped. You know, like trans men that I'm friends with and know get this sort of harassment as well. Gender non-conforming people that I know who have a female body get it all the time. And I'm like, I'm tiny, I'm (laughs) 5'2", I'm, you know, disabled, I'm not someone who you know would be traditionally threatening and as you say it's that gaslighting thing of of being told your reality isn't applicable and and oh it was only a joke or you know you've misunderstood which would work on someone who probably wasn't as um as used to taking it or as used to dealing with people like that i can't imagine you know there were other people that boy could have picked on and I'm very glad that he chose me. <laughs> because that doesn't scare me. Mm. Like, queer bashing doesn't scare me anymore, which I think is because of where, how I grew up, where I grew up, and the fact things are changing. Like, my younger sibling, who's younger than me by seven years, came out as trans to my not very supportive parents, or that not very supportive parents, earlier this year, this past year, so sort of just before they went off to university. Right. And just before lockdown and the world went to oh, hell. absolutely. And- <laughs> yeah. And oh, actually, they had been locked down with my mum and stepdad 
since last March and just and they still went off to university in September and in the States. And I was like, I was really scared for them. Mm. I was terrified because it was fine being queer and it's fine being like cis and queer, but I still wasn't sure whether it was safe or whatever to be trans and queer. And my sibling just went, all my mates don't care. And I just thought, wow, a seven-year age gap is not that big. And already things within his generation are like changing to mean that they feel a sense of solidarity and a sense of a foundation of people who believe them and who want them to be happy in the way that they are happy. Do you think as well that, um, you know, having seen your experience growing up gave them an added confidence to come out the way they did? I think so. I made it really, really clear that, like, whatever they wanted or needed, if it was in my power, I would sort it. Hmm. You know, if they needed anything, then I was there. And whether that was them ringing me at three in the morning, which they did numerous times, or whether it was, I want to find a therapist who is on my insurance so I can get it covered, or I'm moving to this West Coast city and I want to know if there's a community there already. Mm. Because of my queer community and my, I think the fact that I'm happy and the people who are trans in my life are happy and successful and healthy, I think my sibling felt really comfortable envisioning a future for themselves, which was all those things as well. And they always had a network of people to fall back on. You know, I ended up connecting them with three different <laughs> flavors of LGBTQ <laughs> plus people in the city they moved to, all of which would have said, you are welcome to stay anytime mm. you want. And that's something that can only be really, I think, can only really be done with a with a broader sense of queer community, because we know how difficult it is sometimes just to sit and be the person that you know you are. Talking about community more generally, now talking to you, you sound quite confident and, and everything like that, but was there ever any apprehension about, you know, investigating the scene for the first time? Or Oh, absolutely. When I went to Kobar that night, I was terrified. I I had I was looking in the bathroom mirror and I'd chosen fun coloured and I'd chosen some, some socks that I was going to wear and I was like, Do I look queer enough? And I ended up swapping out a perfectly fine outfit for one with rainbow socks on. <laughs> so they would know. So I'd be let in. I was always apprehensive of like putting myself front and centre in those spaces, especially because so many of them are catering towards cis gay men. And I am straight passing. I have to be for casting, right? For my job. And I mean, at drama school, I was told I had pink hair when I got to drama school and a very eclectic wardrobe that still exists, um, built up over lots of Edinburgh fringes <laughs> from Armstrong and Sons. But they went, you're going to need to dye your hair a natural colour and your casting is 
ingenue, this battered 16-year-old is your casting, I think one person, one, one person high up said to me. And so you're going to need to look straight. And I was furious and upset and confused and concerned. I went through all the stages of grief when I got home that night. Mm. And I had to look myself dead in the eye and go, what do I want more? To be visibly queer or a career? in the thing I love doing most. And I chose my career. I think a lot of people expect the arts to be quite liberal and accepting, but how has your experience generally been? I think it's fair. Like, you know your castability. It's fine if you're doing fringe theatre for the rest of your life. You can totally look however you want to look. You can present however you want to present. But if you want a commercial right? They are looking for stereotypes most of the time. And that's how you make a living. That's how you make money. I love voice acting because I can be whatever I want behind this this microphone. You know, I can be someone from up north and actually I've only been to York once, but this is how I've been paid for most of my year. I, this Bradford voice and I've been to York once and I was dressed as a Viking. Um, <laughs> didn't see much of it. Or I can be, you know, an old woman and it's totally fine. Hmm. Um, but when I get called in for a role, most of the roles going for women in particular are not for queer women. There are already, there's a huge disparity between the amount of roles available for women than uh, gender non-conforming people mm. and trans people. And so you are often a love interest or a child or a mother. And so you have to look like, and, and they can always change, you can always look queerer, but you have to start from a sort of neutral, straight presentation. <laughs> I, I'm just interested in how you define a, a straight look and what makes something someone look particularly queer. There's not like one way to look queer, obviously, mm. but there seems to be one <laughs> or or a, a way to look straight. So no weird haircuts, no weird hair colours, piercings, you know, unless they are relatively conventional. So your earlobes, mm. the upper bit of your ear, the nose piercing, those are all fine. It's it's a joke, but it's a real thing, like flannel. Don't wear flannel to an audition. No. Um, so very much ticking the stereotypical boxes here. Well, exactly, we? <laughs> but these the people who are casting want to see you walk in as what they picture in their mind their character to be. It's interesting, isn't it? You As an actor given you're paid to express and inhabit different personalities, you're never allowed really to express your own. I think I've even heard people say with spotlight photographs, go for something quite neutral because then the casting director can imagine you wearing exactly. the costume. Whereas if you wear anything too distinctive, even in a photo, they'll just see you in a different way. Exactly, yes. It's it's that precisely. and And that's a gift to, and I love this job, like, I don't want to pretend that I don't. And I deemed that sacrifice worth it. But I totally understand how for other people it's not, and they can't, and their outward presentation has to match their inner self. Mm. And do I miss my blue hair? Yes. Do I miss it more than my ability to, you know, do 
a Zoom theatre show where I am a, you know, a, a mousy archivist um, who did computer science. No, <laughs> like, and but I know if I had bright pink hair and was gaily attired, <laughs> then I would not be the first person they thought of for that casting. Do you think if there was more parity across the board in terms of representation and parts for queer women, that would change in how you presented yourself? Would you feel more comfortable? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would be, of course, because the more opportunities there are, Mm. the more opportunities there are within that for divergence from stereotype, the more visibility the more nuance, mm. you know, we've gone. So, for example, you can see it with gay men in the in the history of, let's just go with TV, because on stage we've always had gay men represented, um, uh, you know, or, or at least coded, mm. even in bloody restoration comedy. But you move from this broad stereotype of the gay best friend to something a lot more, you know, Maybe he's not the gay best friend. Maybe he is the gay best friend of me. Okay, okay, moving, moving on, moving, you know. And there's, there's just so much variation and choice and representation available for that group who were previously not so visible. Mm. And now you have so much more nuance in the characters that you're being called for. Whereas for women, it's, it's still relatively small. And for trans people, it's even smaller. And I suppose there's a bigger conversation more recently been happening about uh, straight actors playing gay characters because Mm. of the lack of parity. In terms of seeing lesbian characters on screen, very often played by straight women, how do you respond to those portrayals when they appear on screen? Yeah, I, I don't think that you have to be the gender or sexuality of the person you portray acting right it's not real however i think unless the person is doing their due diligence behind the scenes to really represent that community and to inhabit and embody that character in a way that doesn't resort to stereotypes broad brush strokes or fundamental misunderstandings in Mm. some cases the danish girl in particular was frustrating um, for a lot of my mates, until they've proven that they can do that job and do it well, and that there are people, not just actors, but directors and writers and producers and sound design people, the entire team is ready to put in the hard work, then surely it's a lot more economical and a lot more useful to the production if they cast someone who's already got that knowledge coming in. It's like you don't, you know, you wouldn't get someone in to do stunt work if they'd never taken a stage fighting class before. Yes. So regardless of the ethics, because let's be real, this industry does not care about ethics. It will not care about ethics. Let's focus on the practicalities. You know, if it cared about ethics, (laughs) we'd have a very different, approach and understanding to you know role parity pay equality um casting yeah so you know i don't want to assume good faith Mm. 
so let's talk to them in the language they understand. Don't cast someone who doesn't know what they're doing, because <laughs> the backlash is intense. I mean, the James Corden thing, for example. Oh, right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, indeed. Yes. <laughs> Just cast someone queer, because it means a lot less work for the actor, the director, the writer, the mm. production. There are high-profile gay actors. There are high-profile queer women who are out there who would be brilliant in some of these roles. And as you say, it feels offensive when you see those sort of lazy stereotypes then lauded. And, yeah, you know, well, it put feels offensive because stuff. they are lazy. Like, the amount of work that people should put into a role where they do not represent that community is frequently not enough. And therefore slips into pitfalls but also not all shows have to be for all queer people right mm. that's the part of the, the issue as well if there were more things available it's fine if one of two of them are awful right there's a thing in the disability community about competing access needs and sometimes that means you need a you know you need subtitles great but if you're dyslexic, subtitles aren't helpful. What you need is something else. Hmm. And just because one person's access needs are in competition with another person's access needs does not mean that either of them are wrong or either should, you know, give way to the other. But it's about considering who your audience is and acknowledging that you can't be all things to all people or there is no perfect truly accessible truly representative piece of work because my experience of you know queerness as a jewish woman is going to be different from another person's experience of queerness as a jewish woman and maybe i don't want to see another strong female character snog a girl and then get killed in five minutes <laughs> but maybe somebody else does and if there were more things available mm. if there was just more there would be the opportunity to say well i'm sorry that this wasn't designed with you in mind but this other thing has been hannah i've kept you talking for ages so i'm just going <laughs> to uh it, it's been absolutely fascinating i've really enjoyed it but i'm just going to wrap up with uh, a final more personal question if that's okay sure which is um looking back how long do you think it, it took you to sort of become truly comfortable with your queer identity? I think as language changes, hmm. one can get more and more specific about what one's identity is. I'm feeling very comfortable the language I've chosen for myself right now. And it took me seven years, maybe, I would, as a, as a guess, as a number tossed out in the air, hmm. to arrive at these words. But that doesn't mean that those words are forever. And that doesn't mean that they are set in stone. But it also doesn't mean that they have to change. I'm still pretty young. Like, mm. maybe I will turn around a few years from now and go, do you know what? I don't know that I'm a woman. I don't think that's going to happen, but maybe. Or I could go, mm, there's a new word, a better word than queer. Maybe I should 
see how that feels. Defining identity is usually done by creating outgroups. You are defined by what you are not, as opposed to what you are. And that might be easier in the long run, which is why I've chosen queer, because it, all that means is not straight. And sometimes it also means not cis. And that ambiguity allows for growth and change. And I like that. It's a really beautiful note to end on. I think. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so open and forthcoming. It's been a really, really lovely afternoon. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Hannah for finding the time to speak with me and for being so open about all her experiences. Huge thanks as well to everyone who's been listening to the podcast so far and leaving us a review or dropping us a line on Twitter and Instagram. We absolutely love hearing your thoughts and what you'd like to hear more of. So if you haven't already, please do give us a follow at Queer to Eternity and we'll be back with a new episode very soon. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty, Plenty Questions. questions. 